Hi, I'm James Rodier, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, a forum for integrating the life sciences, where we discuss the latest bioscience publications. As a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to bioscience.oxfordjournals.org. And for our third episode, I'm joined by two researchers from Harvard Medical School, Xandra Brakefield and Mikola Zaborowski. They study extracellular vesicles, a field that has profound implications for intracellular communication, disease diagnosis and treatment, and a myriad of other topics, as we'll soon hear. We had quite a bit to talk about, so let's get straight to the interview. Dr. Brakefield, Dr. Zaborowski, thank you very much for being here today. Yeah, we're happy to join in on the call and uh, talk a little bit about the vesicles and this new form of uh, intracellular communication. Great. And just to get us started, for listeners who may not be familiar with extracellular vesicles, uh, just what are they? What are we talking about here? Um, So extracellular vesicles are uh, vesicles that are released from basically all cell types. Um, They are uh, very variable in size, um, and we distinguish... uh, many different types of vesicles, but uh, in general, it's a structure that is a part of the cell that is membrane uh, bound, uh, and it may contain different contents of the cell, um, including protein, uh, proteins, DNA, RNA, and well, all uh, lipids that are bioactive in the cell too. Okay, so we're talking about vesicles that are many times smaller than a cell in most cases, and they're carrying lipids, protein, genetic information. I guess the next logical question is, why are the cells releasing these? Well, uh, it's uh, it's a really relevant question, and uh, well, there are many people trying to answer it, and uh, so far it has been shown that uh, these uh, uh, these contents can be biologically biologically relevant. Um, it means that uh, RNA that is released from one cell can get to the other cell, and it is possible that uh, it function it regulates the function in the recipient cell. And it's uh, similar also for proteins, uh, lipids, uh, uh, and potentially DNA. So this sounds a lot like an intracellular communication system where the cells are releasing an entity, and then that entity is being taken up by other cells where it's having a biological effect. Yeah, I mean, basically, it's like, you know, the Earth sending off a satellite onto, you know, the moon, and um, it's going to pick up signals from that, but it's also going to change the moon's environment somehow, and and the things it can carry are very different than the type of things that would a cell could release. Like, a cell can release certain proteins, but it can't really release free nucleic acid. It would just get degraded immediately, so by putting it in this vesicle, you protect these highly charged molecules that aren't able to pass just through fluid, that they need to be protected in the fluid space. And then, and then you can, you have the, the kind of the power of the genetic code and the genet, all the genetic, um, you know, manipulations that are possible in a cell can be transferred from one cell to another. So the cells are releasing this material through the extracellular vesicles, and it's having a biological effect in the other cells. Yes, yes, yes. That, 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 that's correct. And there are like many examples of uh, this type of biological effects. And uh, mainly they, they were studied in, in, um, in the communication between cancer cells and also between cancer cells and uh, host cells. But there are also many other uh, biologically relevant uh, events like um, um, they have been studied also in inflammation or in uh, neurodegenerative processes. So uh, they are involved in uh, many different types of biological uh, events. Yeah, I mean, I would say just in terms of of neurodegeneration, if you think of something like Alzheimer's disease, there's another function that these vesicles or some 
types of these vesicles can have, which is to try to get rid of the garbage of the cell. So if you have, you know, a cell is accumulating a beta and it's toxic, the cell will try to get rid of it in these in vesicles. But then what happens is those vesicles, you know, in the, within the brain just fuse with another or, or taken up by another neuronal cell and just accelerate the degenerative process. It occurs to me that these are appearing in an awful lot of cell types. Is it most cells or all cells that release vesicles? It's actually very hard to find the cell that does not produce vesicles. So uh, usually we are able to isolate them in various quantities uh, from different types of cells. It's also expanded to include the whole universe of life forms. So like, you know, bacteria that we're now known to secrete vesicles and um, viruses will, well, they do it through the cell will secrete vesicles, but there's, there seems to be uh, this type of communication is going on even in the lowest um, unicellular organisms. And speaking of this type of communication, when was this first discovered? Uh, you know, th this sounds like a, it has extremely wide-ranging implications. And I'm wondering, you know, why didn't we know about it until recently? Well, I, th I think there were kind of two issues. People could see, for instance, in cultured cells, this kind of floating stuff. And they, but our, our, the standard microscopy in labs wasn't really high enough resolution. So they, they called it cell debris. And there was a big debate about whether it was just debris or it was vesicles. And then who were the first to demonstrate that there really was something more to vesicles than simply cellular debris? Well, I think the best example I know of that is the group in, uh, in France. It's Clotilde Thierry, Thierry and um, Grasso Raposo. So they study immune responses and they grow, grow dendritic cells in culture and they notice the vesicles and they characterize their protein profiles and they characterize them by electron microscopy. And they showed in different ways how different proteins, like they have MHC a class one and class two antigens on their surface, how they could not only present antigens, but affect the function of immune cells, other immune cells that in, encountered the vesicles. And I think the immune immunologists were very interested in them at that point, but it, it was only when RNA was discovered in them, which was initially done by Jan Lotval in Sweden, um, again, using normal cells, that people said, oh my gosh, the, you know, the, you could actually transfer genetic information through these vesicles. And then our group was the first actually to show that they could be used as biomarkers um, for a disease state. And speaking of disease states, cancer seems to come up rather frequently in discussions of vesicles. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about oncosomes and their role. Um, well, oncosomes uh, are one of the vesicles that have been shown uh, to be released by, by cancer cells. Actually, all the previously mentioned uh, uh, vesicle types are also released by cancer cells. So altogether, uh, vesicles uh, may, uh, may enhance the proliferation of cancer cells. I mean, <clears throat> vesicles released from one cancer cell can get to the other one, and in this way it may cause increase in proliferation. They may, they may also change the phenotype of uh, recipient cancer cells in a way that will promote invasiveness of these cancer cells. I think the, you know, the oncosomes do seem quite distinctive to cancer cells, that they're very large, but um, in fact, there's, we don't really know which vesicles the cancer cells are releasing <coughs> or causing 
the real problems. But the, but the other things they do are they stimulate angiogenesis. They uh, have enzymes on them that eat into the extracellular matrix to help. They have um, kind of different methods of depressing the immune response to the tumor. Um, so they're a very critical part of a cancer's uh, success. You know, it's, I think if you took the vesicles away, it would be, and, but it's hard to do that, um, would really compromise the ability of the, of the cancer to take over. That's fascinating. It raises the obvious question. If the vesicles are being used by the cancer to proliferate, is there any research being done into slowing or stopping that mechanism? Uh, well, that's that's a very interesting question and very active field. Uh, the the main challenge here is that uh, uh, since vesicles are so important to the function of um, of uh, host cells, it's very uh, challenging to stop uh, the production of vesicles only in cancer cells. So, any therapies along those lines would be something we would look for in the more distant future. Well, I, I've heard there's a company in, like, in California that tries to do like plasmapheresis and just take the vesicles out of the the bloodstream to see if that will slow the cancer down. Um, I don't know how that's going. Um, uh, there's another whole arm of this where people say, "Gee, these vesicles are so great at delivering things. You know, maybe we can use them to deliver drugs or you know microRNAs that would stop tumor growth." And so there's a lot of work at, or different proteins that. Um, are therapeutic. So there's a lot of work going on trying to load vesicles and have them be, you know, delivery vehicles for anti-cancer agents. And how would that work? Would the patient take a drug of some sort or would the cells be manufactured outside of the body? I think that most effort is going into having little, creating, you know, clinical grade uh, factories of normal cells. Mesenchymal stem cells are very popular. They come from the bone marrow. Um, you know, loading them through genetic engineering, loading the vesicles they produce, and then harvesting those vesicles and then injecting the vesicles into people. And are there therapeutic avenues other than in cancer that are currently being explored? Oh, yes, very, very actively for, for, for cardiac um, damage. Uh, it seems to be very effective. Um, yeah, I, we're, we're kind of cancer people, so we don't... Um, you know, we come across, there's plenty of other things, other diseases that are being explored. Arthritis is one of the areas that, that looks very promising, you know, kind of suppressing inflammation in certain areas. That sounds like an amazingly wide range of possible applications. One thing I did note in your article, though, is you mentioned that these vesicles are hard to work with. Um, I was hoping you could explain some of those difficulties. So one of the uh, biggest challenges uh, in the field is um, is actually uh, the method of separation of different uh, vesicle types. So, um, though uh, we try to study different vesicle types, it's uh, really uh, by enrichment of one of them, usually, um, because um, so far, uh, among uh, different uh, isolation techniques, um, well, there are, there are three that are uh, usually used. It's uh, uh, ultracentrifugation, um, these can be also uh, sucrose or um, uh, or iodixinal uh, gradient, um, and the third one, um, uh, these can be also uh, immune affinity methods. There is, a, I would, I should say also there is a fourth one that is uh, um, uh, that becomes more and more common. It's, it's size exclusion chromatography. So um, these all methods uh, they they allow you to 
and reach one of the vesicle types, but uh, not really uh, get rid of all others. Uh, so that's one of the challenges. Um, and the other one is also that uh, uh, it's also related to, to, uh, to methods of, of isolation. Sometimes it can be difficult to um, distinguish the effects that are caused by vesicles itself and um, from the effects that could be caused by uh, proteins or any other uh, active molecules that are in the conditioned medium or in biofluids. And the other problem is that there's so much information in the vesicles that it's very hard for you to figure out what component actually caused the effect that you're seeing. Okay, so we've talked some about the difficulties in working with vesicles, and earlier we spoke about the therapeutic potential, but do they also have potential as a means of diagnosing disease? Uh, oh, yes, definitely. That's that's very that's active. Major, <laughs> major effort, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah that's something we, uh, we also focus uh, in, on in our lab, um, is how to use uh, the, um, the information uh, from RNA or DNA uh, to try to uh, uh, characterize um, some signature that would be characteristic for, for cancer cells. And, well, the ultimate goal of it is to um, uh, be able to mm, uh, characterize this signature in biofluids from the patients. Um, so uh, the ideal um, uh, future uh, achievement would be to, uh, to be able to isolate vesicles and then, for example, a mutation or some RNA that is characteristic for, uh, for cancer cells from uh, human plasma or any other biofluid. Yeah, this it kind of merges with the pre precision medicine initiative, and especially for cancer, you know, each person, they can have what's, you know, the same type of cancer, but really the they can have different mutations that are driving it. And the physician needs to know which in an individual, which are the critical drivers of that, of that um, tumor. And, and they're going to change over time. So especially well, in the case that we work with brain tumors, the, the physician can't keep going back in and biopsying the tumor as he's progressing through his treatment and trying to figure out what's happening. So he they want to read out, you know, that they can do longitudinally in a patient under treatment to help them decide, you know, is the tumor, you know, growing? Is This would also be true of a metastatic tumor where you don't even know where all the foci are. Is it growing? Is it changing its genotype now that I treated it with this one agent? Is it now turning into something else? And is there another drug I can use to treat it? This is very close to being becoming products for some forms of cancer. Um, so, I mean, there's a company that uh, actually sprung out of our um, lab that we're not, we're not directly affiliated with it, but called Exosome Diagnostics that has a couple of um, pro uh, products for cancer detection, um, lung cell cancer, small lung cell cancer, and I think um, prostate cancer that are, are very close to becoming actual products. And the NIH is very vigorously pursuing this um, and trying to set up big reference databases um, because, you know, you need to compare it to, and it's being done not just for cancer, it's being done for practically any disease you can think, high-risk pregnancy, um, you know, neurodegenerative diseases, heart failure, I mean, graft versus host, everything, because it's, it's, you with a simple, well, people, 
typically is taken from the blood, but you can use other fluids. You can use saliva, you can use urine. They all have vesicles. And um, a subset of the vesicles will be derived from the diseased tissue. And then you can, it helps you to monitor the, um, the state of the, the disease. Okay, so we're looking at vesicles that are derived from more easily accessed bodily fluids. Does something like this have the potential to replace a biopsy? Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. That's, that's the goal. Wow, that alone sounds like a really big deal. Um, before we closed, I was hoping, because this is such a new area of study, that I could ask you a couple of speculative questions. And one in particular we were wondering about, is there any role of vesicles that's been seen or studied in reproduction? Well, I, there's a very interesting study. I forget the name of the fellow. He's in, he's in Britain. But um, the actual process of fertilization is a vesicle-mediated phenomena where the eggs produces vesicles at the point of sperm contact, and that changes the surface and allows the, the sperm in and then also is involved in preventing other sperm from entering. There's a whole story on that. All right. Uh, next up, neural cells. We know that they release a lot of vesicles. Is there any thought at all that they may have an influence somehow on behavior? Well, I mean, it changes. It has a role apparently in synaptic plasticity and formation of synapses. So to that extent, it may, it's involved in reinforcing a certain pathways, but I don't think it's in any way selective for any specific type of behavior, or, you know, motor behavior or emotional behavior. It's it's happening in all the neurons. Right. Now, but um, we have we have thought about this is really, and I don't know if we should even, you know, for instance, we think that uh, some people think that addiction is caused by changes in genome methylation patterns. And that's why withdrawal takes so long because you have to actually change the, well, acetylation and methylation patterns of the DNA, which determines its gene expression. And that potentially, that's one of the ways vesicles could be used therapeutically is to bring in molecules that would speed that process. So there's work ongoing, but it's still, it's still speculative. Right. And vesicles are released by plant cells as well. Is there any work being done in this regard, be that agricultural or otherwise? Oh, you know, oh, you know what? There is a there is a guy in Kentucky whose name I forget. Who actually? This is very interesting. So, because you know, there's so many limitations that we undergo in getting clinical grade products that come from mammalian cells. He actually makes vesicles from different types of fruit. He makes vesicles from grapefruit, grapes, you know, and he loads them with drugs and stuff like that. And those can actually be given to patients without going through all, all because they're natural products, right? So he does he does have trials where he gives them to um, patients. I would when I, from talking to him, my impression is that um, like for people with oral cancer and they're on, they're on chemotherapy, you can't take away their normal therapeutic you know regimen, but. Um, I guess their mouths get very, very dry, and he actually finds that giving them these plant vesicles really makes them feel a lot better, and they get normal salivation back and stuff like that. That's great. And I don't know if you'll be able to answer this, but if you are, what's next for your research? What are you working on right now? Well, I don't know if I could tell you that. <laughs> I don't think Nick like can't tell you what he's doing, but um, we are trying to – so in general terms – we're trying to increase the sensitivity of these biomarkers in blood for cancer because 
we need we want early detection and right now that's something that's that's hard to achieve and that's very critical let's say for, in for example in ovarian cancer um, the you know the problem for some of these cancers is that you don't detect them until the person is very well advanced that's also true for glioblastomas um, so we're trying um, a lot of exotic ways uh, taking advantage of the RNA that's in, in these vesicles to try to increase that sensitivity. We're also trying to, we and others are trying to selectively capture out the vesicles from the tumor cells so we get rid of this normal RNA background. So, so biomarkers is very big. We're looking at um, a lot into how, the, especially the brain tumor cells, change the cells in their environment um, to, in support of tumor growth through the transfer of these vesicles. And we have, you know, some data already on that. We're gonna, we continue to work on that. And we're also working in the therapeutic arena, trying to load them, figuring out how to load them with specific RNAs, how to load them with specific proteins to use them um, for therapeutic applications, primarily in our case for cancer. So potentially one day we may use vesicles uh, to give a blood sample to find out if we are sick. And then if we are sick, uh, we may have other vesicles that deliver our care. That's right. That's a very exciting future. Dr. Brakefield, Dr. Zaborowski, thank you very much for being here. Hey, thank you. It was great, great talking to you. Thank you so much. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences. To read the article we talked about today, point your browser to bioscience.oxfordjournals.org. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next time.